Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast. My name is Mike Goldsworthy, and we are creating space here to reimagine the church for our current moment and just a gift to have you hanging out with us today. Um, We've got a treat today. We're going to jump into some conversation with Meredith Miller talking about what it looks like to pass on a faith to our kids that they can still grow and change in their faith, but it doesn't have to hurt them when they do. And she's got all kinds of helpful tools and resources for parents and churches. And she, I've told several churches this, that I think she's one of the more important voices in the children's ministry space in the church today. So I think whether you are a parent with kids, if you are some involved in some sort of church leadership, or even like For those of you who are kind of still working out your own faith and kind of like how to make sense of it, maybe you've grown out of what your faith story used to look like. I think some of the things that she has to share, I've had several friends who have told me I started following Meredith uh, because of like I wanted to figure out how to engage my kids well in their faith journey, but really it ended up helping out me a ton. And so I think that she is a wonderful and helpful voice. So. We're going to have a great conversation. I think you'll find it really helpful. Uh, But I want to let those of you know who are in the L.A. area that uh, we are having a post-evangelical collective regional gathering on September 21st. It's going to be at 10 a.m. at the New City, uh, New City, L.A. church offices. It's in downtown L.A. And you can find out more information. You can register. It's free. We're going to have a free lunch for you and some great content there. Uh, over at uh, postevangelicalcollective.org. I will put links in the show notes for you, but I would love to see you there. And so if you find yourself as a pastor, an artist, uh, other kind of church leader, somebody who feels like you're a stakeholder in the church and you broadly define yourself as post-evangelical, trying to figure out where you fit in the church space, trying to find other like-minded people who care about the church and what it looks like in our current context and are trying to wrestle through what all of that means and looks like. Go to the postevangelicalcollective.org and uh, you can read a bit more about the work that's going on there. And I would love to see you, uh, Southern California friends, I'd love to see you on September 21st at 10 a.m. at the New City Church offices. Uh, I think that is it for the announcements today. So without further ado... Well, friends, I am excited to introduce you to Meredith Miller. Meredith, you have said that you're a pastor and parent who helps grown-ups and the kids they love engage with the Bible and faith in ways that are life-giving, fun, and fit for their real lives. Thanks for hanging out today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I am really glad to have you. I've been looking for a way for us to get to chat. And you've got a new book coming out called Woven uh, that releases August 22nd. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and so it gave a good chance for us to get to hang out together. And I want to, uh, do you mind, I want to talk to you about, I want to talk to you about the book, but I also want to talk to you a bit about your church and a bit yeah. about the work that you're doing there. And so folks that uh, tend to listen to this, we tend to have like folks who are leading in post-evangelical churches and we tend to have folks in some sort of space of like deconstruction reconstruction of their faith which um you write about like even changing some of that vocabulary so i want to poke into that some but like so 
some of the folks uh, are in those spaces and you and your husband, Curtis, planted a church out in Pomona, which is in California for folks who don't know. And um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that story about like the heart behind planting and what your church is like. Well, we never planned on starting a new church. Uh, that would sometimes be our joke line when we were a bit overwhelmed with our more typical church staff jobs that, you know, we're just going to quit and start a church in Santa Barbara or somewhere that felt fun to live. And um, a big part of why we didn't plan on it is that we just kind of assumed you could always help some church be good at what they wanted to do. There's so many of them. How could you not find some place to be? And um, we were about 15 years into church staff style ministry. Um, we'd always been at different sized mega churches. So from as small as 2,500 and then Right before we church planted, we were at Willow Creek in Chicago. So that was more like 25,000. And we realized that when it was time to leave Willow, we could either join another church staff and do what some other dude wanted to do again. Or maybe that And it was going to be a dude. It was going to be a dude. Of course it's going to be a dude. Or maybe we could sort of sit with questions we'd had for a long time about whether the model was even really working. Which... Is hard because that model, if you get hired into that kind of model, it's so stable. And honestly, doing the job for those kind of churches can be really fun. There's resources and there's people who are excited. And you, if you, you know, a lot of what I do with kids, like you get to do fun things with them. Yeah, and kids yep. are having a great time. Like there is a lot of good stuff in there. And so you kind of want the model to work because it. It's stuff you were familiar with, good at, all that. And so instead, we sort of traded for like, okay, what about all these doubts that uh, we have about the efficacy of this? What would that mean? What would we do? And so those are kind of the questions that pushed us forward on church starting. And we ended up sort of where we are and how we are because when you want to start a new church now, the more stable sources to help with that. The denominations and the networks that are making new churches are overwhelmingly non-affirming uh, yeah. of our queer siblings in church life and leadership. And they, many of them are also unwilling to have a woman pastor. There's a really narrow group of folks that are helping make new churches that are post-evangelical, um, especially if what you need is some money. And so we had some friends that I grew up with in church who also had sort of found themselves no longer at home in the church that was always their home. And they were willing to help us out. And so we came back home to Southern California where I've always grown up and had some friends and started eating dinner in our backyard. And now we're a church on Zoom, which is bananas. I mean, we all had to be for a while, but like we're just there still. We're, we're closing in on like three years, I think, of three and a half years of being just Zoom. Yeah. And and then we eat sometimes and we go to the park sometimes and we have Thanksgiving brunch in the park every year as a tradition and some good stuff like that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, what what were some of those um, doubts about the efficacy of the church model that you'd been experiencing that were like sort of like for you were a couple of the top ones that were like, well, we need to try something different because I feel like this isn't what's going to be uh, best. Some were practical. Okay. We thought a lot about how much the churches we were in asked people to be on their campus. Like yeah. how many times a week are you supposed to be somewhere in order to like be a good member of this community? And it's Sunday morning. It's 
an extended Sunday morning because you should volunteer to make Sunday morning happen. It's another time in the middle of the week that you join a group, often with strangers, which is increasingly uncomfortable for people. Um, and so you're thinking like you're you're talking like three times a week minimum just to be like basically a good participant in this thing. And we just started to wonder like, do I have to do it that much? And also maybe with the people who don't want to do that are not like heathen who just don't care about Jesus. Like maybe they also care about the rest of their life. And when we thought about like, what are you trying to form people for as a church community? It's like you're trying to form them to live in ways that echo who God is in the places they actually do their life. But then we don't give them enough time to be in those places where they actually do their life. We want them to just keep coming back to us. So that was a huge one for us. Um, like a lot of folks, we watched the presidential election of 2016, and it just felt like a, a huge miss in terms of whatever we've been doing for far before the election. I mean, probably mm -hmm. decades before this election did not form people in such a way for them to see, at a minimum, the risks, if not the uh, reality, depending on one's opinion, that we picked this person. And what will this mean for the uh, over and over again named vulnerable folks that the Bible gives so much care to? And to, it just felt like such a huge miss. Like, the model can't be working if we so overwhelmingly picked someone who was going to cause so much suffering for the marginalized. Um, that, to me, felt analogous to, like, the German church in World War II. Yeah. There's decades leading up to that moment, and then it's their turn, and they get it wrong in their loyalties. And the white evangelical, white-cultured evangelical megachurches we were in, that 80% of us voting in a way that hurts people, people will suffer and die because of this choice. And um, and how much it was about claiming what's mine, claiming what I want. It's like, we're not claim what I want kind of people. Hmm. Um, that That's not, that's an odd thing to have decided we're going to camp out on. So that's, a, those things kind of in the, the real like practical people in their lives way. And then the big way where it was like, oh, we're not doing the things we want to do in the world. Those, those were huge for us. Um, and then coming from the kid side, we had a lot of experience in churches that really just wanted you to like uh, do what Fuller Youth Institute calls the dry cleaner model. Like I drop off my kid for an hour. Can you return them like clean and pressed? <laughs> I've never heard that used. I like that. That's shocking. I haven't heard that. And we don't want to make that for young people. That doesn't help young people become whoever they were made to be or figure out how they like to live in the world or connect with the love of Jesus. It just, it doesn't do that. And so we had already had some practice at Willow, which people don't always expect, but like our curriculum at Willow that our team created together was meant to sort of start pushing on that and do something different mm. and try new things. And it was working really well. And so that was some encouragement to say, like, we want to do more like that too. Yeah, I like love that. Yeah, we didn't want to join another church that was going to do the big box curriculum that keeps telling kids to go be good over and okay. over. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of folks don't realize um, Willow. Like, my understanding is I obviously wasn't there, but there was a lot of like experimentation that was happening there, that there was space for during a certain period of time. It seems to maybe be less true now, but um, during a period of yes. time, there was a lot of room for all kinds of different experimentation. 
there really was. I mean, that was the same time that the practice was happening with uh, sort of looking at modern liturgical. My husband, Curtis, was doing a lot with them. Um, as long as certain things were stable, then other right. things could be played with. And so as long as kids, for instance, were still like having fun and wanting to be in the ministry, the senior leadership who didn't know very much or care very much about children um, as a conglomerate, like, but all they really cared was if a parent picks them up and the kid says they had fun, you guys can do whatever you want in the middle. So we could change our curriculum to do what we thought was better because it's still got to be fun because it's for kids. Like, that's just kind of a, that should be a no brainer. Yeah. And so that gave a lot of space that, um, that, that value meant we could play around a lot, which I was grateful for. Okay. Um, well, I could talk a ton. I've got a ton of questions about your church, but I don't want us to go too far down that path. But for folks that are listening that like haven't found it, like are just kind of in between and haven't found a space mm -hmm. to land, um, I'll put a link up since you all are doing Zoom church that wherever folks are at, you're able to hop in and be a part of the work that you're doing. And um, Curtis, who people won't hear, is a great uh, preacher too. So you'll get some great things uh, being a part of their church. So check them out it's a lot of fun we're uh i think we worked on zoom in ways other churches didn't because we were never a sit and watch what's happening from a platform group sure so if we were in our backyard we already were um like only 45 minutes for the formal stuff we were already preaching just 15 minutes at the most we already had space for people's responses and stories and conversations so when we had to switch over it was like oh we use breakout rooms, only now we call them virtual brunch because we used to eat together. And we have people bring their stories, same as always. And we are already used to preaching shorter, which is great because none of us can pay as much attention on Zoom. And so some of that um, sort of playing around with the order of service, often by drawing on stuff that's been in the tradition for a long time. It's not like hmm. it's not like it's radically new. We didn't invent anything. But just piecing it together in a more playful way uh, has made it really fun for everybody because we spend like half of our time, like our literal – Number of minutes we're together, at least 50% of it is in conversation and stories. It's um, wonderful. As opposed to like one talking head. Yeah. Yeah. So good. That's so good. Well, so at some point, though, um, you start putting stuff out on the Internet and you start talking into your phone and talking about parenting and faith and kind of the intersection of those. And you've got a ton of people who are trying to figure out like how do I make this work with my kids that they were folks maybe like you and I who had grown up in church and maybe are, and now have their own kids and maybe are even in different places than they were or and they're just trying to figure out like what do I do here and you started gaining a bunch of traction and people started paying attention and were like asking you stuff like what did you notice in that what were people looking for what were you saying that was resonating I was so surprised because it started with the closure and curriculum coming home from churches and my friends feeling like this wasn't what they expected the conversations to be about or they didn't quite like it, but they weren't sure why. Oh, like there a take home thing from like went to kids ministry and here's the thing to talk about when you go home. Well, so that's what they've seen so far. They, they okay. have been given sort of parent handouts, but in March of 2020, churches were sending home the whole curriculum. Like here, oh. mom and dad, do it at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, you know, so more stuff's coming. Or like, hey, here's our video because it's, you know, family church from home in the living room. And so they're seeing a whole new layer to these lessons. And it was like, wait, what? What? Why? Why is it like this? So my friends who've always known my job finally cared about my job. And they were the first to ask, like, what is happening with these lessons? Okay. And the answer was, oh, what you're seeing 
are lessons that use the Bible to raise good kids. You're seeing lessons where what really matters at the end of it is that a kid go and act a certain good way. Now, we might call that good way a fruit of the spirit, or we might have some sort of like spiritual language around it or shine a light for Jesus. But ultimately, the whole point of the lesson is for the kids to go do that action. It's called application-oriented curriculum. It's been around forever. And the upside is that it means to make faith relevant to kids and their lives. And the downside is that sometimes in order to establish that relevance, it simply becomes absolutely moralistic. It's just a big project and good kids. And the reason for their goodness is vaguely God and the Bible. And that filter became, I think, the thing that resonated with people most strongly was when you start talking about moralistic faith and how it uses the Bible or misrepresents God, then you have people who aren't just watching it with their own children, but realizing it's a big part of their own upbringing and that it's a huge thing they're trying to untangle because the God of moralism kind of stinks. And they're wondering like, wait, so is that what God's like? And if God is not like that, then what does that mean I do to help my kid meet God in a healthier or more aligned sort of way? No one pretends they can get that perfect represent God so well to their kids, but within reason, right? What can we do? And that's, a, I think, a big part of where my having spent so long in church curriculum world and with kids and such became helpful, which was yeah. so fun. I, I'm so glad it's helpful. Well, uh, one of the themes that I've seen show up quite a bit in your work, uh, both online and in your book, is that that picture of uh, moralism, of a moralistic God, of of uh, moral therapeutic deism. Do you mind unpacking that a bit? Like what is a moralistic God? Why is that an issue? Yeah. So around 2009, Christian Smith and his team from the University of Notre Dame sociologists released the study that coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism, that most young people in the U.S., regardless of faith tradition, thought that God wants them to be good. The point of religion is to be happy. And that an out there, far away God is kind of watching, and that God will come in to like prevent crisis and you know ensure happiness if you're good enough. And so it becomes a contract. If I do the good stuff and don't do the bad stuff, God owes me protection and happiness. And so one of the things that's interesting in 2023 from research in 2009 is that uh, a lot of the faith communities and institutions and resource makers didn't change a darn thing after we learned about it. We just kept going. And so it's kids experiencing the substance of their faith as list management. I get hmm. a, a do's list and a don't list, and I am working as hard as I can to maintain those two lists. And then you fast forward that to crisis or pain, and a kid has no alternative but to think either they were not good because look at how this crisis has come or God is not good because they didn't keep up their end of the bargain. And so you end up with someone who's very disillusioned in their pain and doesn't believe that God is nearby because the deistic God isn't nearby. Or you get a kid on the other hand who is just stinking exhausted. Like list management is exhausting and they try so hard to be so good. And some point comes, usually in their young adult life, where they're tired and there's no grace around for that. There's no other model for how to connect with God or be part of a community. There's just being exhausted and they think the next thing they have to do is muster even more energy to just try again. 
Mm. And the idea of doing that on and on into perpetuity is not a very appealing religion. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you share that. I was thinking about some folks that I know from previous experiences that um, that that would have been their upbringing and their concept of God. And for some of them that ended up in healthier places, a part of how they worked through it was a sort of uh, a through spiritual formation pathways and that they're in kind of a, a different kind of place as a result of that stuff. But their kids are still in programs that are still oriented towards a moralism kind of teaching. And even as you're saying that, I'm seeing this like huge disconnect between kind of the place where they are at of being able to rest in the goodness of God and being able to sort of just rest in that rather than having to perform, but that their kids are being taught the very thing that they had to unpack to get to a healthy kind of place. Is that is that your experience? Do you feel like the people are experiencing that sort of thing or am I off? I, no, I don't think you're off at all. I think there are a lot of adults that exactly that have found this healthier understanding of who God is and what that means for how they respond in their lives. But the... I mean, the, all the major big box curriculum in the United States, all the major family devotionals that hit the market and you can get them on Amazon, like it's overwhelming how much that's still the model and how little has changed towards the idea of like, what if you're building a family faith culture, not just teaching your kids what so-called obedience means? Um, and I think that's actually a big part of where it gets tripped up is how we think about obedience. And we can, you know, circle back to that in a bit, but it's... It's wild how little exists so far to help a whole family just raise their kids in that kind of restful, anchored in love, unique to their own family. Like Spiritual Pathways was life-changing for me. The act, you know, the actual original mm -hmm. book, yep. Sacred Pathways, the idea of there being these options that we're not just show up at the church building to sing the songs and listen to the talking head and try real hard. I super needed that because I was at a point in my young adult life where the things I had done that had worked that I had enjoyed, they didn't work anymore, even just for practical reasons. I was going to bed later because I was a college student, so I couldn't do the quiet time kinds of things that I had done before. And I didn't want to, but I did have other things I could do. And I just, I really needed someone to walk me through those options. And there's not enough for families to know that the same kind of thing could work for all of them. Yeah. Okay. So I want, uh, I want to talk about how, like, what's the help for families that want that? What's the help for churches that want that? But let's circle back to obedience and yeah. why is obedience not the goal for kids? Obedience isn't the goal for kids because I don't think obedience is God's goal for any of us. Hmm. Despite how often it shows up in the Bible, it's not that that is God's end, obedient humans. Obedience is a secondary response to trust. I don't do anything that someone tells me to do unless I trust them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't change anything in my life unless I think that change will be for my good because the person inviting me to that change wants good for me. And ultimately, when you see really massively disobedient people in scripture, which is one of the things I love about our Bible, how much we tell stories of like wildly screwed up situations because people did awful stuff. But when those folks trust this God, there's always a way back. 
it's there's never too far gone there's never too wrecked there's always some way forward because that's who our god is and so i am concerned how much we've decided that the goal is obedience and we know exactly what obedience looks like and therefore we can tell kids what obedience looks like train them in that obedience and we completely bypass kids getting to know who God is or why God is trustworthy or why any of those obedient choices might be life-giving in the bigger sense of things. We don't think we need to do that. We think, oh, teach kids to be obedient. And then here's what's real, I think, really beneath that is if you teach kids to be obedient, then the parents who really want compliant children get compliant children. Yeah, yeah. Or they overpromise that God will somehow like hashtag bless that kid. And they just think the kid's going to grow into trusting God because the obedience will like magically create a great life. Like it's still got a lot of control going on. Yeah. And those don't work. But No, we, we end up on a Duggars documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But everything is built on the idea that like, of course, God wants us to obey. So what's wrong with teaching kids to be obedient? And it's like, well, you're doing that at the cost of them not actually knowing God in any meaningful way for themselves. And you're doing it at the cost of not giving them a process for that, right? Like Jesus's folks got three years to hang out. They knew more scripture than a lot of us. They knew the whole story of who they're waiting on. And they get three years to figure out if this dude Jesus really is who God has sent and who he claims to be as full grown adults. Like that's a long time. That's a whole process. And kids would need something similar. Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking about parents who had experienced the obedience uh, sort of training. They're they're not wanting to pass it on for their kids. And so they end up at a place with nothing because they're like, I don't know what else to do. I don't want them in that kind of a church. So I'm pulling them out of those kinds of churches. We don't know how to – what's the better, more positive response to this? I'm saying no to that, but I don't know what to say yes to. What is the thing that those parents move towards? Okay, so what they move towards, why the book is called Woven, is a metaphor where you think of faith like a spiderweb. That a spiderweb is constructed by having these anchor strands that the spider finds like a firm, fixed thing, a retaining wall, a strong branch, and then they swing across and they grab the second strong thing that they can anchor that thread to. And they create these anchor strands that give the web its strength. And then the spider uses a totally different kind of silk even to weave internal threads that give it its unique look and texture and beauty. When we imagine faith a bit like weaving a web, then what we're moving towards is that I'm going to help my kid anchor to who God is. And I can do that in a lot of ways. And I'll come back to that in a sec. But I'm going to anchor to who God is. And then our families, internal threads of our family faith culture get to look unique to us. I don't have to follow a formula of like dinnertime devotionals and perfect bedtime prayers and um, every Sunday, Sunday school attendance. I get to weave a web for our family of the faith practices that are not only part of the broader Christian tradition, but make sense for who we are. If we are not going to sit at a dinner table because it's not our family rhythm, maybe we don't have to do that. Maybe we talk best in the car. And maybe my kid, like, is actually at their best in the morning 
And so we sometimes do some stuff in the morning, but by the end of the day, we all just get ourselves to bed because they're spent. And so when I imagine what I'm doing is that we're weaving a web as a family, that I'm helping my kid weave a web of their own, well, then I can pick some attributes of God that I feel really confident in. And I could always start there. What are the two or three things about God I feel most confident in now? Even if I'm someone who is in a reconstructing and deconstructing sort of space, there's probably a few. You could say, okay, what are a few places in the Bible where a kid would see God being that way? And you tell your kid those stories. Like, just tell them. You don't have to have them read a Bible or have a kid's Bible or anything. You just talk about them at some point. And then you start to think about other kinds of things that help kids connect to God's love. Are they outdoorsy kids and you hike? Are they, you know, art kids and you draw together sometimes? And then every now and then you just take a little thread connecting that thing to, I love that picture. It's so cool how God made you creative. Like, mm. oh, so beautiful today. I love that God chose to make everything so diverse out here. Like so many different plants. Like it doesn't have to be belabored and heavy handed. It's just weaving little threads that connect the idea of who God is to the more practical things we do. Yeah. There was for me a major shift um, that happened kind of in my own uh, like faith journey. Dallas Willard like had a significant impact on me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things was the way that he viewed spiritual formation and that like anything could be a spiritual discipline. Like anything could be a spiritual discipline. Truly. Yes. Um, he even, he said one time that golf could be a spiritual discipline and his thing was, as long as you don't keep score, cause then it had a different objective. Was it, but anyways, the idea of like opening that up to your kids of like a hike is a, is a spiritual discipline in a way yep. that it opens you up to connect with God in a way that, and there's like such a freedom in that, that's been for me so helpful in my own sort of journey. Same because my kids don't like the formula. So even if I was going to try and do it, like, they don't like it. They have never liked any children's Bibles we've ever happened to have around. And, I mean, let's be honest, I don't usually like them either. But, yeah. um, you know, we try to have them around because the art and so on. They don't like them. They just want me to tell them stories. They don't want to read them. Um, they want me to tell them to them. Okay, we're going to do that. They, uh, they don't sit at the table for anything. Right, like we are still working on the idea that maybe we don't picnic on the couch because you guys spill every single meal. But they just don't. There's no dinner time devotion to be had. Like all of that formula stuff. And we're now in a church that does not have a formal children's ministry that they can attend Sunday school in every single Sunday. That isn't where we're at as a faith community. And so we need other stuff that keeps them getting to know God and getting the chance to respond to God. And um and I'm so grateful that there's options because they hate all the formula. Yeah, so it's much. so good. It's so freeing. It's so helpful. Well, and you were talking about the idea of um, when you're telling the story of Scripture, centering on God and the character of God rather than on the people in the story, yes. which I found really helpful. And you told um, the story of David and Goliath in a way that like, I thought was a really helpful because that's one that gets used all the time in... Children's it gets used in adult sermons too, in a way that like that you point out some of the danger of using it. That do you mind sharing a little bit of how you tell that story? I thought that was really helpful. No, I'd love to. Okay, so um, if I'm doing the obedience training model or the high application model, I'm gonna say that David went to the battlefield and heard Goliath taunting the Israelites and thought this cannot be. 
And he had courage. And so he went and got his rocks and he threw them at Goliath. And he was not afraid. And Goliath was struck down. So go and be courageous like David. Stand up for God when you are facing hard situations or people who might tease you for your faith or whatever version of connecting Goliath to our life we'd want to do. When I practice God-centered storytelling, I'm always looking for who is God, what is God like, what is God doing in this story? Probably there's lots of answers. And the older the young person is that you're working with, the more of those different answers you can highlight at any one time. But the younger they are, the more you want to stick to maybe just one. And so if I'm going to tell David and Goliath, I'm going to say that David had gone to meet up with his brothers to bring lunch and heard Goliath taunting the people of Israel. And he saw how afraid everyone was. And of course they were afraid. It's a giant. And they were worn out because that's what battles do. And he thought, I'll do it. And then I would stop and I would ask kids, why do you think David said yes? What do you think David might have known about God that made him able to say yes? I wonder if it's that he knew that God would be with him. In fact, in the Bible, that's what it says. It says that he knew God would be with him and he wouldn't be alone. And so he went to the river and he grabbed his five stones and he went before Goliath and he said this really neat thing. He said, I come before you in the name of Yahweh of Israel, who's going to help me defeat you. And so I bet David probably felt really scared, don't you think? He probably did. But he grabbed a rock and he threw it. And wouldn't you know, Goliath went down. What are some things that make you feel scared sometimes? And you let kids answer. Is it easier or hard for you to believe that God would be with you when that happens? I'll tell you, sometimes it's hard for me when I'm really afraid of something because I know I can't control it. And I sort of hope that if God is with me, it's all going to work out perfect. But I know it might not, but God's still with me. I don't know. What about you? And so from there you go into all these different places. But it's very different than David was courageous. You go be courageous. David stood up for God. You better stand up for God. It's, of course, we're all afraid. Here's who God's going to be for you in your fear. And the way that focusing on God as a character and highlighting an attribute allows kids to enter a story, to me, there is no single practice that has been more helpful in how we approach the Bible with kids than God-centered storytelling. Yeah, I mean, genuinely, as you're sharing that, like, I was getting goosebumps because, like, I have my master's degree in this stuff, and I, um, I don't know that I have ever told the David and Goliath story in in the way that you just were. Like, I think I have often. In fact, there's probably people listening who have heard me preach it who would be like, "Yeah, Mike, I heard Mike preach it that that first way." (laughs) They're gonna call you out. (laughs) Yeah. That. I mean, I don't think I ever did like, what are your five stones that you need to have or whatever, but I'm sure that I did. I'm sure uh, that I oriented, it was not a God-centered uh, storytelling around that. And even like thinking about Old Testament stories or the Hebrew, the stories of the Hebrew scriptures, like it helped that it's such a helpful framework for how to engage in those well. It helps with the fact that a lot of those stories are, especially, I mean, they're tricky for all of us. The culture yes. is so very different. And not every story in the Old Testament or the Bible at large is age accessible for children. There's definitely a bunch we should skip anyway. But there are some that become a lot more accessible once you flip. So like my husband Curtis was the fourth and fifth grade teacher for a few years at Willow. And was he really? 
He was, yeah. That's he was also the, the, the kindergarten first grade teacher. And that one, he got to use more voices. He had a German accent when he was Professor Wunder one time. And he was like a super broed out surf lifeguard and like all that. Well, we did this series with our fourth and fifth graders called Heroes. And we did Abraham and David. And I can't remember who else. And it doesn't really matter. But what we did was tell about how they failed. So we talked about, like, Abraham gets held up as a hero of faith, but let me tell you about the sister wife lie. Like, this time of absolute <laughs> faithlessness. And who was God? God is faithful. No matter what, right? Well, this meant that this was the very first time we did David and Bathsheba in grade four or five. We didn't do it at the younger ages. But for those older kids, we do David and Bathsheba because David doesn't have to be a hero. David can be a complete and total jerk. Um, which is too soft a word for that experience. But... When Curtis said to this room of fourth and fifth graders, so he he cheated on his wife and he takes this other person and wrecks her family. The room was like audibly like, oh, because the number of kids in that room whose families have been disrupted by unfaithfulness relationally yeah, yeah. and distrust is high. So suddenly the idea that there's a character who in their own way and time had done something so hurtful and disruptive and made such a mess of everything, like that's relevant. That like victims being caught in the crosshairs of that, that is those kids. Hmm. Me having to juggle my new split family schedule and my parents' emotions and like they they feel that. And it works because in the end, you're talking about a God who is able to work in and with anybody after any mistake, no matter what. Have you ever felt like you've made think like mistakes that can't be fixed? Do you have people in your life who've made mistakes that you think maybe can't be fixed and you got hurt? Like all these things because we don't need hero David because the humans aren't the heroes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that shift is so helpful. And it's um, so in the book, you give a lot of uh, practical tools, a lot of like practical tips, especially like the second half of your book is a lot of like walking folks through some practical tips of here's how you make some of these shifts and changes. And I don't want to go through all of them because um, I want folks to, you know, give you money. And, uh, like, you know, help your kids and all of that. But one one that I wanted to poke into a little bit, because I thought it was just a really helpful question that I thought folks who are listening to this would appreciate it, is uh, you bring it up when you were talking about in California, in fourth grade, uh, our kids go through California history. And one of the things in California that I grew up in California also and that the uh, that gets told in fourth grade is that we have these missions that were here. And when I was in fourth grade, the story was about how wonderful these missions are, about how much they help bring about agriculture, about how like, and like we've got, there's all kinds, there's all kinds of stuff around it. Right. Yes. And as we have become more aware, or I don't, I don't know what all the sort of like cultural things are, but that narratives begin to change somewhat in our schools, depending on what school you're a part of and blah, 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 to recognize the colonialism that's a part of it. The uh, uh, slavery that was a part of it, that like all, all kinds of issues that are going on there, right? And the question that you, you see, so you talk about a field trip you went on with your son to this and San Juan the, Capistrano, right? Oh, it's a beautiful Juan, wedding venue, yes. and the and the swallows it's return lovely. every year, you guys. <laughs> okay, so I don't want to take your story from you. I'll let you, no. like, I'll let you tell the story because I thought the question that you used there was such a helpful question, both like. Mm just in parenting in general, but then also like in moving it into stories in the scriptures. So San Juan Capistrano is beautiful. And yes, the swallows return every year. 
And I was a chaperone on the field trip. And we get to one room along the way where the docent says, this room is devoted to the indigenous community that was part of this uh, area before the mission was built and was, you know, then part of the mission as it went along. It was the only room in the entire mission devoted to the indigenous community and their story. Like you get 20 feet by 40 feet and some pictures and some cooking tools and some jewelry. There's no storytelling of members of that community. So I've had to hear, hear about father who's foot and father so-and-so and father this and that for the last like hour and a half by name, every single one of them. And they're very specific things that they did. Um, but there's no names of anybody from the area who hmm. preceded the Spanish. No one's story is personally told, not one. And so then I got to like debrief with my kid who loves his fourth grade teacher who's been teaching for 20 something years, but should have improved the curriculum, but she hasn't, but she's lovely, right? You're trying to navigate all of that. And so the question was, hey, as you think back on the trip, if you think back about like this little like mission unit your teacher had you do, um, I'm kind of curious, like whose story didn't you hear? Like whose story wasn't told? Because, I, I mean, I heard a lot of stories about the, like, priest guys. I didn't, I didn't hear a lot of stories about women. I didn't hear a lot of stories about children. I didn't hear a lot of stories about anyone from the indigenous community. Like, did you notice that? And that just has become a really helpful question for us when it comes to knowing that we're anchoring to God is just. But then you have young people, and they're learning what it means to practice being people of justice. And... Whose story is missing has been a really helpful on-ramp to if their story is missing, what might that mean should happen next? Hmm. And especially when you come from privileged places, often if someone's story is missing, you've been told that you should tell it, voice for the voiceless and all that. <laughs> but again, as we learn more, listen better, people are saying, well, maybe what you do then is find the people trying to tell that story and see if you can amplify in some way or share, or point back. Maybe the ones who are telling their own story need political support, policy support, and we could, you know, connect with that. Maybe someone can't tell their own story because some other obstacle has prevented them from being able to move forward. Can we be part of moving the obstacle so that their voice can ring out? And so all of those potential next right steps often flow from just noticing on the front end, like, whose story is missing? Whose is being told? Whose is missing? Yeah. That's so good. It was such a helpful, like simple framing that um, that's one I'm going to grab and I'll be using. Um, yeah, I just found that really helpful. All right. I, I want to make sure that we get to talk about your issue with deconstruction and language of moratorium as opposed to deconstruction. So you kind of hit on that a little bit. I guess this takes us a little bit out of like um, uh, kids stuff, although like a part of what you say you're doing is helping parents to I, I don't know how you phrase it about like having a faith that doesn't have to be deconstructed in their kids um, well and i think what parents often ask me is can we do it without deconstruction because mm. they have and it's hard and so then they don't know what to do and a lot of where this kind of work has been so fun is that yes it's for our kids but a lot of times it's us adults um as adults thinking through the stuff we need to be more clear on or comfortable yeah. with or settled on in order to then connect with our kids more. And so often the request has been like, 
can can you help us with giving kids like an undeconstructible faith? And 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 no, because <laughs> it is normal and healthy for young people's faiths to change tremendously as they become adults of themselves, like on their own. And I found um, someone named James Marcia, who's a researcher, and he talked about our sort of faith growth as having a stage called foreclosure, which basically is like accepting whatever you're told by authority figures. Like you just receive that all in. That's often also part of young people just work that way too, brain developmental wise and all that kind of stuff. Then he talked about a phase called moratorium. Everything's on pause. It is where everything gets unpacked and looked at and revisited, kind of like a lot of us think about deconstruction. And then on the other side is the phase where you take what's yours to hold on to, the things you want. And where I think deconstruction has been often very painful is for anyone who was denied moratorium when they were actually supposed to be allowed to move into it. They weren't mm -hmm. supported through it. They were um, in a community that was afraid of it. Well, then you have no choice but to have everything kind of feel like it's crumbled around you. But there is this other idea that we would expect kids to go through a time where their faith will change and where they will question what they've been taught, not because they're so sure it's wrong, but because questioning it is the next stage in their faith growth. And so there's an expectation for change and a willingness for us to walk with young people through that and say, hey, this might feel scary, but it's going to be all right. And we're here with you. And these are great questions. That change doesn't have to be about healing from a wound. So we don't need to worry as much about having an undeconstructible faith. We need to know that we will expect change. And we've given them a faith that hasn't hurt them. And then that faith will still change because that's what growing up is. Yeah, that's good. And within all of that, I have questions about calling it all construction and deconstruction as it is. Sure. Deconstruction is not my favorite term either. I've said on here multiple times that I tend to use it because it's what's in the larger sort of zeitgeist vocabulary. Yep. And so people get it and they know. They know. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I like to use language of like faith expanding, faith evolving, faith growing and changing. Um, like, because I do think I agree with you. Like, I think... It's normal and it's expected and it's normal and expected, not just in faith in right. so many areas of our life. It's normal and expected to go through periods where like what you had understood before isn't working for you anymore. It doesn't make sense in the same way it did anymore. And you have yeah. to sort of like figure out then what do I do with that? Exactly. And, and that's always been a normal part of the faith journey. It has. And part of the normal is that it feels uncomfortable or at times scary or that the change that comes on the other side might cause relational loss. And those are all hard things. But I think the more honest we are about those being also part of the process, the better. And I agree that I don't mind using deconstruction fundamentally. I get why it's helpful as people have something that feels shared. But when I considered how a parent might want to think about passing on a faith their kid doesn't have to heal from. Yep. I thought, okay, this metaphor does have limits. All metaphors do. One of the limits of a deconstruction and reconstruction building type metaphor is that we still might find ourselves thinking the best thing to do is just give our kids a better foundation. Because mm. of course you have to start with a foundation to give them better bricks to build with. 
that are just truer, righter, you know, healthier. And to, to sort of just construct something better, just find better blueprints. But I think that if we entertain the idea of it's more like weaving a web, our faith, it's, it's far more web than walls. Then what I'm helping my kid do is build something that is fundamentally flexible. Like the metaphor of a spider web is a flexible image from the jump. Um, in fact, one of the things I loved that was part of the book was this MIT study on why spider webs are strong. Because this is like a famous thing, the strength of webs. And everyone would be like, I'd love my kids to have a strong faith. Well, spider webs are strong. The reason is their ability to flex under stress. Hmm. High wind, something catches it. That they, their ability to bend under stress is where the strength comes from. Walls don't bend under stress, whether that's the stress of, wow, something happened in the world that doesn't line up with my view of God, or the stress of, wow, these faith practices I used to connect with are really leaving me with nothing, and I can't keep trying them. That's, that stress, if we're saying, that's okay, because I can roll in something new. If we've worked in that kind of space, it helps us move through it. Yeah. So if a um, if the like building blocks for some folks were like, the moralism was kind of like a, a personal moralism, right? Like, right. and whether that was personal piety or things like courage and things like that, what then are you seeing in some of the post-evangelical spaces if they're just trying to replace bricks with different bricks? Like, I got to give them uh -huh. a better foundation and got to give them better bricks, better rocks, a better wall. What are some of the things that are replacing that that are a kind of moralism in that space? I'm really glad you made this connection and brought this up because I have thought about this a fair bit um, because you can have a list management based faith around any sort of items. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the places where Dallas Willard was very influential on me was that simple phrase, the gospel of sin management. Yep. Well, if you move into a space that says what we believe to be most sinful relates to injustice, racism, and truly, yes, of course, these are sinful things. I'm not at all questioning that. But again, if you don't rethink how you're going to talk to the young people in your community, you just make that the list. You do do justice and show up in community action environments and recycle and compost and whatever other kinds of things sort of mark compassion and justice efforts that we think flow from following God. And you don't... Um, also vote certain ways, right? That's still on the list in a lot of ways. You don't, um, you know, use styrofoam or eat at Chick-fil-A or whatever sort of uh, markers we think don't fit those progressive values. But you can still build a list management type of faith and hand that to kids um, just as much as you can on a more conservative lens, you know? And so I... I think that there's some danger in that because you still have kids that will end up exhausted. Because if you think about justice, as important as it is, anyone who has been working for significant justice change for the long haul will talk about burnout and discouragement and despair. If all we've given young people is go do it, go be that way, off you go to change the world, you still haven't equipped them for what to do with that inevitable reality that the force of what is ugly in our world is going to resist that and they will be tired and discouraged and they need... Uh, companionship and rest and reimagination. And so when you instead thought about, okay, it's an anchor. I'm going to anchor to God is just. 
I'm going to give them some internal threads about being able to practice justice. We're still going for that. But I'm also going to help them know that when a strand around justice breaks because you see something egregious happen that just should never have been allowed and you've just got this broken part of your web, like I'll be there to help you take all the time you need to reweave it as maybe you meet new people who are still involved or talk to a mentor who's been in this fight longer or find a new book that gives you hope again. Like we can reweave the broken part. It isn't all or nothing. Hmm. That's um, that's really helpful. Yeah, I think one of my concerns in this space is the is the flipping the coin to like doing the other side of the coin that we haven't actually like uh, moved our faith in a way that's actually expanded it. We have just uh, traded one set of moralism for another set of moralism. We've got one purity code. And now we have a new purity code. Yeah, I share that question. And I think we're early enough in it that it's important to be asking now before that becomes what we settle into. And I think then we'd be harder pressed to be doing sort of some good reimagination work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I would love before we wrap up here for uh, folks who are here who are in churches to know like how churches can be involved in this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so like, What's it look like? Um, I know you've written some curriculum. I know you do some workshops. Maybe you have some other things. What are some of the ways that churches can be engaged here? I think if churches want to start having this kind of conversation, a great option is to get your parents and your children's ministry staff in some sort of intentional conversation kind of space, not just a one-off and, and this and that. So, I mean, obviously, I would love if that was buy woven and get some groups together of parents, grandparents. You could have a generation together. You could do intergenerational, which I think could be very interesting because part of all of this is how a certain generation thought they should do it for their own kids. And then those people are parenting. And now what does that look like together? Um, I do offer some workshop stuff that helps um, both staff and families begin to think about like what is the next step forward? Because I know a lot of times it feels like we're talking around it and then there's what do I do? And so I love being able to spend an hour where every family is filling in uniquely. What do they do? Um, curriculum consultations for churches is similar where it's, it is not as hard as it seems for a church to write their own curriculum. It, is, mm. it can be challenging, but oh my gosh, if you start writing your own stuff, if you start doing God-centered storytelling with your church's best storytellers, whoever they are and why ever they're good at it, maybe because they're teachers or because they're silly or whatever, and they just get their face in front of kids and tell them a story, ooh, the things that can happen. So there's lots of these shifts that don't have to feel so big um, that just say like, hey, we're a community that wants to raise young people well. And so we have space for parents and we are learning as a staff and it's fun. That's good. Well, if I could make a little bit of uh, advocacy here as somebody who was a senior pastor, I'll tell you, folks, um, your senior pastor is not necessarily thinking a lot about the children's ministry curriculum. And so uh, that person may or may not be like, oh, we should have Meredith Miller come help us think about this stuff. The way that's largely going to happen, I can tell you, if there was a group of really invested parents of the church that I was leading who came to me and said, there's this um, woman who's putting out this incredible stuff that has been shifting the way that we think about the way our faith engagement with our kids, we think it has an impact on the church, we would love to have her come in and do some stuff here. And in fact, we're even going to like, we think it's so important. Like we've pulled our money, like we'll help fund that happening. Like uh, I would be, it would be messed up for me not to be paying attention to that. So whatever I can do to 
advocate for you all taking some initiative in that, not expecting the pastor of your church to do that. Um, I think that some of this stuff will probably be a more bottom-up movement in some churches. I think it is overall. I mean, the folks I've met in the last few years doing this who are wonderful are often, we're connecting with one another parent to parent, and they have different degrees of support when it comes to their formal church structures and different degrees of alignment. And um, there are definitely many of them that are hoping for uh, a value in their churches of just wanting it to be raised up. But it's true. If you're a senior pastor, you're not always able to give this the same kind of attention in the scope of all the other pieces of work you have on your yep. plate. Yep. Um, all right. Well, where do people find you on the internet? Instagram, Meredith Ann Miller. Uh, I write a Substack newsletter that goes out once a month for free or once a week for $30 a year if you want more. And so there is um, a link to that and my book and my podcast for kids that I make with my kids all at my website, which is MeredithAnnMiller.com. Awesome. I'll get it all up in the show notes. And uh, Meredith, what a gift. I'm so excited for people to get this book. I'm excited for uh, the way that people are wanting to intentionally uh, engage in the faith development of their kids and how you are helping uh, people think that through. And I also love the way you mentioned it earlier, but I've heard so many people say, like, I started paying attention to Meredith to try and think about stuff for my kids, but actually, like, it's had a bigger impact on me. And so I love the way that, like, you um, just are helping people as they are trying to figure out, like, what faith looks like for them now. And so I hope uh, I hope that this gets a lot of traction. Thank you so much. I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> <laughs>